We'd love to have you turn there. I want to greet each and every one of you. Thank you all for being here. If you're a guest this morning, uh, we're super thrilled that you're here. We know how hard it is to try something new, and so uh, there should also be in seat backs in front of you uh, connect cards, welcome cards. Uh, if you'd like to fill one of those out, or if you're a little more tech savvy, there's a, a QR code you can scan that you can do that digitally if you want with your phone. Um, but either way, if you would stop by uh, our welcome desk out here, we've got a gift for you for coming today. We're, we're thrilled that you uh, took the step to be here and be a part of this today, and so we're happy to have you. I'm going to ask that each of you join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in this message, so let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, that we have that living hope that we just sang of. We're grateful for the empty tomb of Jesus and everything uh, that that means to us. And then we pray that as we talk about that this morning, as we unpack the ramifications of that, that uh, those who have that hope this morning would be encouraged in it, that they uh, would be strengthened in it. And those who, who came into this place, Lord, not having yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be their day of salvation, that you would do something new in their life today, uh, that this would be a day that they would look back on for all eternity um, and remember the day that, that you intervened and stepped in and saved them. Uh, we ask that you would do this through the power of your word. We ask that you do this to the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, my wife, Corinne, and I have four girls. Um, and so our house is uh, busy and chaotic at all times. Our oldest, Hattie, uh, turned 13 last fall. So we actually have a teenager now. And a couple weeks before she turned 13, I actually turned 40. And I tell you that because logic and math tell me that there's a large portion of my life where I didn't have kids. I don't remember any of it, but logic and math tell me that has to be true, right? Um, and so there's one, one of the very few things that I recall prior to kids was uh, the weeks and days leading up to Hattie's birth. And so as first-time parents, uh, Corinne and I were that combination of incredibly excited and incredibly terrified. And we were living in Cloverdale, Indiana at the time. We were living near a, a golf course that I had, had worked at for several years. And so every evening in the, in the, in the evenings, we, we just took walks try to help this thing along, and on multiple occasions during those walks, Crin started having contractions. And every time, I got the full dose of adrenaline, right? I just spring into action because our hospital was 40 minutes away, and so we didn't have a lot of time to waste. I'm like, all right, is this it? Do I need to grab the bag? Do I need to get the car? Can you stay here? I'll go get it. Like, spring into action, and I'd get all worked up, and then nothing would happen. And what I know now that I didn't know then is there's something called Braxton Hicks contractions, Right, these are false labor pains, and I would say they're only false if you're not the one feeling them, right? <laughs> but these false labor pains, they, they, they present themselves as if, as if the mother is going into labor, and then nothing happens. And these affected me far more than they should have, right? I, got, I ended up, they, they happened enough times that I got discouraged. I was like, how am I ever, how is this, this is never going to happen. My wife's going to be pregnant forever. The baby's never going to come, right? And then, and more importantly, with the 40-minute drive, how am I going to know when it's real? How am I going to do that? I'm supposed to spring into action. And then the real day came. And let's just say that none of my questions were relevant. Because I didn't have to ask, is this it? It was clearly it, okay? There's, there's actually, I've read there's actually a hormone that's released in the mother's body that helps her forget pregnancy. And the reason I know this to be true is because we don't have one kid. There's no way she would have gone through that again if she remembered, Right? But the dad doesn't get that hormone, so I remember everything clearly, right? And I remember that Braxton Hicks labor and real labor, they're not even worth comparing to each other. And I knew in a moment that this is the real thing and our lives would never be the same again. And I'd like to wish you all a happy Easter. I want to thank you for being here. And we've been doing a series as a church building up to this Sunday called No Other Name. Right, that's what the bumper video you saw, and it's, it's a series about identifying aspects of Jesus Christ that actually make him different, that make him set apart, that make him unique and exclusive. 
And the reason why we're doing that is because Jesus claimed to be exclusive. And the Bible, on multiple instances all throughout, proclaims Jesus Christ as exclusive. It says that he's greater. It says that he is better, that he is more powerful, that he's more authoritative, that salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus, all of which are pretty huge things. And so we've wanted to unpack why. We wanted to understand the heart behind these claims of exclusivity, to see their validity and grasp their importance, because throughout human history, we've all known something is wrong. You study any time in history, any civilization, and you'll find that man has always pursued a, a, a God. He's always pursued a religion or something outside of us. There are people in this room, right, who've pursued a variety of things in an effort to find purpose in this life, an effort to fill a longing in their soul that nothing else has been able to fill, to discover a solution for a problem they know exists but they can't quite put their finger on. And these efforts are genuine, and they get people worked up for a time. But ultimately... They're Braxton Hicks, because at the end of it, nothing is different. And then there's Jesus Christ, who stands alone, who has never stopped making things new, who came from where no one else has come, who went to depths that no one else has descended to, and ascended to heights that no one else has ascended. And for 2,000 years, he has been impacting lives in ways that people have known immediately that they would never be the same again. And Easter is the day that is set aside annually to celebrate his resurrection, that event that that changed everything and ushered in something entirely new for humanity. And our prayer has been and continues to be that there would be people today for whom Jesus and his resurrection ushers in something entirely new for you. That the day would be the start of something in your life from which you will never be the same again. And so to help us understand the passage, I'm going to have Roxanne Poe come up and read today's scripture passage for us. It's going to be uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 26. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Roxanne. Thank you, Roxanne. You guys can have a seat. If you had the scriptures, keep them open right there to 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Bear with me. We've got to talk about a little bit of context for a second because uh, we don't want to just pull that out and have it stand on its own. That, that passage that Roxanne read for you is, sits in the midst of a letter, and it's in the middle of a thought. And so we're going to have to kind of walk through that real fast. 1 Corinthians is a letter uh, by, written by the, a man by the name of Paul, who is an apostle, an early leader of the church. And Paul traveled around to different cities in, as part of his ministry and would plant churches. He would find towns that there weren't churches. At, he would share the good news of Jesus. People believed he would plant the church, uh, train up elders in the church, and then he would go to another city and plant one there and repeat this process over and over again. But most of the New Testament are letters that he wrote back to churches, a lot of them that he had planted. And in Corinthians, is one of those. And so he's writing to this church in Corinth that he had a part in planting. But one of the things that he's addressing in this letter is false teachers. 
is a group of guys who've come in behind after Paul left and began to teach things that were incorrect, especially about the idea of the resurrection. And so we have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in this chapter, he, he lays out at the start in verse 3 the gospel, he's, he's, the gospel which he's, he calls of most important, um, that, that Christ uh, died according to scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, which is one of the things we are celebrating today. And then he unpacks everything that the resurrection of Jesus changes for us. The rest of the chapter is all about the resurrection. And, and, and so I want to use those verses, verses 20 to 26, to sort of take those and help us pan back even further and to see things, see the whole picture that Paul would have understood, that his readers would have understood, but we might not at first reading. So the first thing that we can see here is that our collective problem is greater than we think. We all have the same problem this morning. Now, we all have more than one problem, but we all have the same main problem, and it's bigger than we think. Most of us know that something's wrong. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would disagree with that. You ask them, hey, is there something wrong with this world? Everybody's going to say yes to that. And here's why. Based on how you drove in to be here today, what direction you came from, the majority of people sitting in this room right now either passed by a hospital, a nursing home, a funeral home, a cemetery, or a combination of those things. Just the fact that you passed those this morning tell us that something's terribly wrong. You added that the division is palpable, that there are wars going on, that we're coming off a pandemic that altered life for everyone. I don't even need to make the argument this morning that something's wrong. Collectively, we feel this. Collectively, we all deal with this. But did you know that collectively we all contribute to it? That if I want to know what's wrong with the world, if I want to know what's wrong with life, I want to know what's wrong with me, I don't, I don't need to look any farther than myself. Because Romans chapter 3 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory, his perfect standard, which means we've all done things that rebel against God's good design, his commands, and his orders. That, and just because we've all done that doesn't mean the problem's any easier. Because Romans 6 says that the cost of this, the penalty for this, the wages of this is death. The reason human beings die, and we all do, is because of sin. In addition to that, Romans 8, that all of creation, not just humanity, all of creation is crying out and groaning under the curse of sin, that our planet is literally feeling the effects of this. And 2 Corinthians 5, we, in our, these bodies, we groan and burden in these bodies because they are cursed by sin. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And we aren't sinners because we've sinned. We aren't sinners because we do things that are wrong. We sin and do things that are wrong because we're sinners, because it's our very nature, and we inherited this from our parents who were sinners and gave it to us. And so if you want, blame them this morning. But once you have kids, then it's your fault that they're sinners. That only goes so far, right? But this is not a small thing. But we treat it as if it is. You understand we do, right? If you asked everyone today, everyone you know, you polled everybody you know, you asked them the question, if they think they're perfect, hardly anybody would say yes. Now maybe you know that really special narcissist that thinks they're perfect, Right? But almost no one would say yes to that. But if you asked, you asked them this question, are you a good person? Then I'm betting most people would say yes to that. If you asked them this question, do you deserve to die because of your sins? I'm betting most would say no to that. If you asked them, do you deserve to spend all eternity in hell because of your sin? I'm betting the vast majority would say no to that. And the reason why is because we constantly overestimate our goodness and we constantly underestimate how great our problem is. So look at verses 21 and 22 again. 
I'm going to highlight the bad news first. There's good news and bad news in these verses, but we're going to highlight the bad news first. It says, for since death came through a man, that's bad news, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam, all die. Listen to that verse. For just as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, Adam was the first man. He and his wife Eve were the ones that, that first sinned, right? And they, they, they ushered in the curse that we exist under now. And what comes from our sin is felt everywhere. And the Bible is clear in this, that, that illness and tragedy, injustice, racism, division, abuse, natural disasters, accidents, separation, broken families, and more, these are all the ramifications. These, are all, these all exist because of human sin. But you know what the greatest ramification of sin is? It's death. Death exists because of sin. And there are actually two levels to this death. First, there's a physical death. Sin kills everything it touches, including us. The reason the death rate for humanity is at 100% is because we're all sinners. But in addition to that, there's a spiritual death the Bible speaks of, in which our sin separates us, puts a barrier between us and the God who made us, and it puts us in a state of spiritual death in which we owe God a penalty. We owe God a debt, a, a price for the sins that we've done, and there's nothing that we can do to pay it. And because of this, Ephesians 2 says that we are children under wrath, that the right, just anger of God for our sin is stored up and it's waiting on us and it will be unleashed on us for all eternity in hell. That is how big the problem is. And there are far few people, few two people grasping it. Now, it's not that we don't know there's a problem. And it's not that there aren't efforts being made to correct it. It's just we vastly underestimate how big a deal it is. A few months ago, I was eat, we were eating in a restaurant, and it was Corinne and I, and we had our twin four-year-olds, and so she was sitting on one side of the booth, I was sitting on the other, and I had Remy and Rhea on both sides of me, and I got one of those, those really crazy intense back itches, you ever get these, that are just in the perfect spot that you can't reach, no matter what you do, right, but it just needed to be scratched, and so I, I'm doing this thing in the booth, right, I'm starting to shimmy around, I'm, try, I'm trying to get it itched, and, and if you need to know anything about this story, the one detail you need to know about my wife is that she has one goal in public, if nobody knows we were there, it's a win. Right, if we can go in a place and out of a place and avoid all attention and nobody even know we were there, then that's a good outing. So when I'm squirming around, right, and I'm starting to make a big scene, I can sense how uncomfortable she's getting. And so I'm like, hey, I've got two humans beside me. Maybe they can help. I'm like, hey, Remy and Ray, can you, can you scratch daddy's back real fast? Well, Ray didn't even look up and just kept eating her sandwich. And Remy half-heartedly, apathetically just reached over and scratched my elbow and then went back to eating. So absolutely no help at all, right? Just no help, which is, I guess they're for. Um, and then Corinne, seeing me squirm even more, finally got uncomfortable that she said something that made us both laugh. And she was like, just go to the bathroom already. And I looked at her incredulously and I was like, my arm isn't going to be three inches longer in the bathroom. Like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be magical, right? For all my squirming, for all my requests for help, all the suggestions I received, all that effort, my back still itched. Nothing changed. You see, we try to be good people, don't we? We try to treat others fairly, all in the hopes that our good will outweigh our bad. We try to turn to religion. We think it's by a series of beliefs, a series of steps, a series of acts. We, we think we put our faith in a ceremony that's performed on us as a child, or by praying a certain number of times, or giving a certain amount, all in the hopes that it's going to appease God. Or we even try the Jesus thing out. We go to church with some friends during our teen years. We try to coast off our parents' faith for a while. 
We enjoy the community aspect of church. We enjoy the friendships we have there, but we never actually really surrender to Jesus. We never truly confront our own sin and our own need and your own state before God. And what happens is in all these steps and all these efforts, they have a flurry of activity. They look good on the outside. right? They have an appearance of piety, but they're just Braxton Hicks. Nothing has changed. There is no encounter with the authentic, real Jesus. There is no answer to the solution or no, to the problem of our sin. There's nothing that's different because our problem was greater than we ever thought it was. That's the bad news. The good news is this, that Jesus' solution is greater than we think. See, the common view of Jesus is that he was a great man. He's a really great teacher. He, he came and did some miracles. He told everyone to love each other. What could be wrong with that? And you might want to follow him, but if you do, there's going to be a list of rules that you shouldn't do and a list of rules that you should do, and, and that might be good for you. Right? That might be good for some, but it, it, if it's not for everyone, that's okay. And nothing could be further from the truth than that. Look at verses 21 and 22 again, but this time we're going to highlight the good news. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I want you to understand, of all the enemies, of all the hurdles and all the struggles that we face in life, the greatest one is death. It is the most permanent, most painful, lasting, cruel enemy that we have. There is no one whose life and whose experience hasn't been impacted, hasn't been hurt or shaped by death. There's no one whose earthly life won't end in death. It is no respecter of persons. It comes for the rich as it comes for the poor. It comes for every race and every gender. There's no one who will not be negatively impacted by death. And what we're celebrating on Easter Day is that Jesus Christ not only conquered death for himself, but he offers us a permanent and lasting solution for death. And this cost him dearly. Right? Jesus is God, and so when he, when he took on human form, he did not sin, which means that his death was different than every other death. Whenever I die, it's going to be because I'm a sinner. Whenever anybody else dies, it's going to be because they were sinners. But when Jesus died, it was because he chose to. He chose to, to take the price and, and, and to take the place of sinners. And we, we owe God a debt for our sins, because, but Jesus paid the price for us. Here's how Romans 6 puts it. For the wages, right, the cost, the penalty of, of sin is death. But here's the gift. The gift of God is eternal life, the opposite of death, eternal life, life that never ends in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus stepped into our place. He willingly chose death. He willingly experienced death. He willingly suffered to the point of dying in order to offer us life. And the reason that we know he's capable of offering us life is because of his resurrection. You see, he didn't barely escape death. He didn't roll or limp out of his grave and still need months to recover from his wounds. No, he died fully. He was beaten with a whip that tore the flesh off his back. He took six-inch metal spikes in his wrists and feet. He was beaten to a place where he wasn't even recognizable. There was a spear thrust into his side where blood and water came out. He was fully, fully dead. And on the third day, on Sunday morning, he rose in glory and splendor. He rose in power. He rose in victory. He rose as if what had happened to him was nothing at all because compared to his power, it was nothing. And he rose to reign Verses 25 and 26 tell us that he's reigning right now, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and all of his enemies are being systematically put under his feet and the last one, the very last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death. But make no mistake about it, the fact that it isn't been destroyed doesn't mean it hasn't already been defeated. Because it has. 
There's a word I want you to see in this passage. Look at verse 20 again. It says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, and here's the word, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward, at his, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now that term, first fruits, that's an Old Testament term, and since I don't think anybody in here this morning is a 2,500-year-old Jewish person, I'm going to explain it for you. Okay, in the Old Testament, there was, an, there was an act of worship that was done at harvest time. Right? And when the crops were ready, when the very first crop was ready, they were to bring the very first crop to the priest. And the priest would take that, the first fruit, and he would take it into the altar, right? Into the tabernacle, in the temple, into the presence of the Lord. And he would wave the first fruit of the harvest before the Lord. And it was a declaration of gratitude to God, not only that this first one came, but that there was faith that the rest of the harvest would come and it would all belong to the Lord. And Paul borrows that concept here for Jesus' resurrection. He says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he wasn't the last resurrection, he was the first fruit. That his resurrection was actually an offering before the Lord that signified that the rest of the harvest would belong to him as well. That means is this, that since Jesus was raised, we too who belong to him will raise. That when our earthly life ends, we too are going to experience a resurrection to life eternally. That, that this weak and broken and sinful limited body that I have now is going to be raised in immortality and perfection all because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And I want you to see the confidence that that can give us. Look, if you have your Bibles under 1 Corinthians 15, look down at verse 54. He's still writing about this, and Paul says, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal body, we feel that, don't we? These mortal bodies are breaking down every day. When this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now listen to verse 55. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to get what was happening in that passage. That is the apostle Paul openly mocking death, the greatest enemy we have. He's laughing in the face of death. Where is your power, death? Where is your sting? Where is your victory? That is what Jesus Christ makes possible for us. And by the way, if death doesn't get the final say, neither does anything else. Cancer, illness, divorce, abuse, trauma, mental illness, suicide, substance abuse, injustice, oppression, war, violence, all types of suffering. If you're in Jesus Christ, none of these things get the final say. Because Jesus, in his death and subsequent resurrection, provides for us a hope and a solution that overcomes all of them. Because just as our problem is greater than we think, Jesus' solution to our problem is greater than we think. Because there's nothing, there is nothing that Jesus cannot make new. I do not want you to miss the picture of Jesus being painted for us here. He, we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is a risen Savior and King, that he's sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that his enemies are being systematically, one by one, being brought under his feet and under his rule. It is by his work, by his death and resurrection and his might that he's making eternal life possible for many, and he will abolish all other rule. He will abolish all other power and all authority besides his to the point where he eventually abolished the reality of death itself, which means this. There is absolutely nothing that you are facing. There is nothing in your way. There is no hurdle in front of you that is beyond the scope of Jesus Christ, that is beyond the power of Jesus Christ and beyond the love of Jesus Christ. On the night that he went to the cross, 
right, the night before he went to the cross. He shared a meal with his followers. This is the meal that, that we now call communion. It's a meal in which we remember his death on the cross for us. And this is one of the things that he said in instituting that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, in the same way he took also the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Did you catch that phrase? New covenant is how he put it. Seen times past, humans would have had to try to earn their way to God. By adherence to a system of sacrifices, religious efforts, and more, now Jesus is establishing a brand new covenant. Because in Jesus, heaven and God had come to us. He would do all the work necessary for us to know God. He took on our form. He lived the sinless life that we could not. He endured the awful death. He rose again, all to offer us this, that if we will simply turn from being our own solution, if we will turn from being our own answer in God and trust and believe in Jesus Christ completely, we, he saves us in full. All our sins have been, or will be forgiven in full, never to be counted against us again. We will go from being separated from God and alienated to God and hostile to God towards being adopted as his child and being friends of his. We will go from being bound for hell to having the gift of eternal life in heaven guaranteed. Which is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, here's the word again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, see, the new has come. Because Jesus is the real thing. Because to confront the reality of your sin and having a saving encounter with Jesus means you never have to ask again, is this it? Because you, when you find him, you know that nothing will be the same again. He's the one that we are foretold that will be at the end of time making this proclamation in Revelation 21. The one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. So I'm wondering today, who is ready to begin something new with Jesus? What is it that you've written off as impossible? What is it that you have written off as an unfixable and insurmountable without ever letting him have a shot at it first? Maybe there's been intense bitterness in your marriage for decades, and you've just decided that's the way it's going to be. Have you ever surrendered your marriage to Jesus? Have you, have you ever invited him to, to have his way to come in and thaw things? Maybe there are barriers that you have, have actually put up between you and God. There are questions that you don't have answers for. There are experiences that you would rather not have experienced. Have you ever just surrendered your questions? Have you ever just surrendered your doubts and your experiences to the grace of Jesus? Have you ever just let him have a shot at changing you and changing your heart and changing your outlook? It might be somebody from the past that you decided you just won't forgive. It might be something in the past that you've just been unable to move on from, and you've decided, I'm just going to be stuck here the rest of my days. Have you ever just cried out to Jesus? you ever just given him these things and invited his power and his grace and his might and his peace to move in ways that you never thought possible? Or maybe you claim faith in Jesus, who is risen, who reigns, who is the king of kings and the giver of life, and yet... Most days go by without hardly a recognition of him by you. You don't read his word. You don't seek his input. You don't make it the aim of your life to honor him. You have the greatest power in the universe at your disposal, and you're going through this life entirely by your wisdom and by your efforts. May today be the day of the start of something entirely new for you, where you go from believing in Jesus to actually following him. You go from believing in him to pursuing him, to relying on him, to deepening your relationship with him.
And it might be your sin. It might be your need for a savior. You know something is wrong. You know something is off. But in all your efforts to find that purpose, in all your efforts to find that, that, the longing to be fulfilled, all of them have proven futile. And you might have even tried some things in the past, seasons that you went to church, seasons you tried having one foot in and one foot out. I was reading a story told by a businessman about an old building that he was trying to sell once. And he was showing it off to a prospective buyer, and this building had been vacant for months, and he hadn't been out there, and he didn't realize how bad it was getting. It's in pretty bad need of repairs. And so as he was walking the, the prospective buyer through the building, he noticed that, that vandals had damaged the doors and that they'd put graffiti all over the walls and some windows had been smashed out. And he was starting to get embarrassed. And so as he was showing it, he kept saying, don't, don't worry, I'll take care of that. Don't worry, I'll get, I'll get a crew out and we'll replace that window. Don't worry, we're going to paint over that. Don't worry, we'll fix that door. And finally, the buyer stopped him. He's like, can you just forget about the repairs already? He said, you don't understand. When, when I buy this place, I'm, I'm building something completely new. I don't want the building. I just want the site. Too often... We try to sell ourselves to God. Don't worry, God, I'll fix that. Don't worry, I'll clean that up. Don't worry, I'll be a better person this way. Don't worry, God, I'm going to get my act together. And at some point, we need him to step in and just say, enough with the repairs. I've done all the work. I don't need you to fix yourself up. I just want you. I want your heart. I want your belief. I want your surrender to my grace. And I'll do all the work from there. And I'll build something entirely new. I'm wondering, are you ready for something new with Jesus? Are you ready for an authentic encounter with the Lord of all the universe? Are you ready for nothing to be the same again? Stop clinging to religion. Stop clinging to your parents' faith. Stop resisting because of some past experience you had that wasn't the real thing. Stop trying to be your own answer and your own hope and your own solution. It's time that you confront the reality of your sin. It's time that you get real about the debt that you owe God that you cannot pay it's time to turn to the only one who can pay that price, Jesus Christ, and ask him to do so in faith. And you'll find life, you'll find new life, you'll find forever life in Jesus. Stop trusting in anything else and put all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your trust in him. Let's pray. There are two groups of people I want to specifically pray for this morning. And the first is a group of people that have a situation in their life, have, have a relationship in their life, have something in their life that they have declared as unfixable, as they have declared as impossible, as they have declared just insurmountable, without ever surrendering that to Jesus. If that's you, I, I would like to pray for you this morning. And the second group is those who, as of this morning as when they walked in this place, had never went all in with Jesus. They never fully surrendered their life to him. They never fully put their belief and faith and trust in him and his death on the cross and resurrection and that alone to save them. You've tried the Jesus thing. You've tried the religious thing. You've tried to be in the better person thing. You might even thought that by showing up today would get you in God's good side. But to this point, you've underestimated your problem. And you've underestimated how great a solution Jesus can provide for you. So I'm going to pray for you that today would be your day of salvation. Father, all around this room, there are struggles. There are trials. There are hurdles that, that are just bigger than us. 
And God, I'm betting around this room there are people who tried to fix those things within their own wisdom, who tried to fix those things within their own power and their own capabilities and have since just decided they're unfixable. And Lord, I pray that they would take those things and surrender them to the power and grace and might of Jesus Christ who has conquered our greatest enemy, who has defeated death, who has risen in glory and reigns in power, that nothing is too big for him. Lord, may we surrender those things to you. May we invite you to work in a way that we haven't yet before. May we see you move in new and fresh ways. And then, Lord, for everybody here who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the salvation of their souls, I join in with everybody else who knows him, everybody else who knows the real thing, everybody else who's experienced that salvation in him as we plead and we pray that today would be their day of salvation, that right now as they sit in their seat, they would just surrender. They would just say, yes, Lord, I believe. Please forgive me of my sin. Please give me the gift of eternal life. I'm trusting in you and in you alone. I'm trusting that nothing will ever be the same after this again. Draw them to yourself now, Lord. Save them. And do a work of adding your kingdom that only you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We'll close our service. We're going to sing one more song of response, one more song of worship. But if, if you were here today and you, and you said a prayer of salvation, you asked the Lord to save you and redeem you for the first time in your life, we want, we want to celebrate that with you today. We want to find you at the service, so please come talk to us. Please come uh, and let us know. We can show you in the Bible exactly what that means, and we can get you started on this journey with Jesus Christ, and nothing will ever be the same again. So would you stand as we sing?